Well, here's the church. All that we do is based on what God says in his word, and we're going to read God's word together now. Uh, if you don't have and would like to have a Bible in your hand, because you haven't got one of your own or an app, um, Horace is very happy to bring you one. No, we've run out. We've run out of Bibles. What a great thing to do. Um, Joe, will you come and bring us our Bible reading? Thank you. Okay, our reading is from Hebrews chapter 4, uh, starting at verse 14, and it will go through to chapter 5, verse 10, and that's page 1204 in the Church Bibles, if you've got one of these. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among the people, and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honour on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, You are my son, today I have become your father. And he says in another place, You are a priest forever, in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray together as we come to that passage. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you're the God who speaks and you speak to us as a church corporately. You speak to us individually into our hearts by the power of your spirit through your word. Please now speak into our hearts. Would we hear not my voice Would we hear your voice this morning? Would we not be thinking about anything other than the Lord Jesus? And uh, as uh, you speak to us of him, uh, would you draw us ever closer to him for his name's sake? Amen. So who do do you go to when when life is tough, when you've got issues? Because because life is tough, isn't it? We face problems from without. Uh, People treat us badly. Uh, The world around us causes us to suffer. Our health fails. Our happiness is is a fragile thing. But but more seriously, I think, and maybe more seriously for me, we face problems from within. Uh, We make a mess of our relationships. Our selfishness, our our pride, our insecurities, they sort of bubble to the surface, don't they? Maybe they do come out in a tantrum in the middle of Tesco's. We can't face ourselves sometimes sometimes let alone face others. So what sort of person do you go to when life is tough? I guess most of us like to go to someone who's, who's sympathetic, who's, who's for us, 
who says, they're there. And most commonly, I think we like to go to people who say, oh, no, no, really, you're a good person. No, no, really, you're not like that. No, really, you are a nice, kind person. And of course, I'd, if I was treated by them in the same way, you've got every right to feel towards them like that. It's an injustice. It's unfair. It's actually the most common way we encourage people, by sort of bigging them up, getting them to look at themselves. And of course, in the end, it's a disaster. Because the Bible says that we're all sinners, that we're all those who don't live up to our own standards, let alone God's standards. So if you encourage me by getting me to look at my achievements or, or my character, you might for a small moment get my self-pity just to be put to one side. But sooner or later, I am going to fail. And worst of all, what you're doing is getting me to look inside. And as I look inside, I look at my biggest problem, which is me. I, um, I have a group of uh, ministers I meet with, a fraternal it's called. Uh, they're guys who understand this weird job that I do. And uh, I once went to one of these, these meetings. These guys have known me for years. And I was feeling a bit low. Um, and uh, one of the guys said, oh, Daff, I, I listened to one of your sermons online. <laughs> a hit for me. Ego increase. So I thought I'd, I'd launch the false fly of humility. You know, if you've done any fly fishing, you, 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 you get the fly out there. The idea is you get the fish to... To, to bite, and this was the false fly, the fly of false humility. Okay, so the answer was not supposed to be anything other than your great death. So out goes the fly of false humility. I said to, said to him, um, so uh, the sermon, my sort of sad face, the sermon, was it was it just average, or was it really awful? And and without even pausing for breath, this bloke who's who's one of the sincerest blokes I know, without even pausing for breath, he went, ah, oh, somewhere in between. You see, we, we don't just need people who sympathize with us. We need people who are real with us, who are honest with us, who are willing to tell us that that's where you've gone wrong in the past, and also who are willing to draw alongside us and, and help us in our struggles in the present. We all need friends like that. But the most amazing thing we're going to see this morning is, is actually we have a God like that, a God who sympathizes with us who's able to both understand our struggles in the present and give us the strength to cope with them. And now last week we ended with some uncomfortable verses. Have a look down at uh, the passage we looked at last week, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. This is what we read. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It divides the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered, laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. In other words, reading the Bible sometimes like open heart surgery with a dirty great big knife that, that gets around in your insides and exposes what you really like. And then even worse in verse 13, God sees you uncovered, exposed, totally bare. There's no secrets about what we're like from God. We're left incredibly vulnerable. So how are we going to keep going with this God? Well, the answer in Hebrews is this, that we actually go to him. We go to our man in heaven, Jesus, who is our representative there. Because if last week we saw that holding on to Jesus was about not hardening your heart to his word as he spoke to you, this week holding on to Jesus is about going to him in prayer, however you feel, however much you have failed. 
We're coming to the, the heart of the book now because from 4.14 right the way through to 10.19 is the central section of Hebrews. And it's all about how Jesus is all we need. And we've seen that, that we still find it hard to cling to Jesus even if we believe he's all we need. Look at the first verse of our passage today. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. You see, we've seen already in Hebrews that the writer says you've got to cling on to Jesus. And for the Hebrew Christians, it looks like the problem was they, they wanted to fit in with the world around them. It was tough being a Christian in the first century. And therefore, if you could fit in with the world around you, life got easier. Does that sound familiar to you? They didn't want to be the one who, when they went to the office party, everyone was just muttering about because they weren't hammered like everyone else. They didn't want to be the the mum at the school gate who had that awkward moment of walking away from the conversation because the teacher's reputation was being slandered and everyone just looking at her as she went. They didn't want to be the person at school or college whose friends just slightly muttered under their breath when they said, oh, I'm off to the Christian Union today. They wanted to fit in. We all want to fit in, don't we? And so, so the writer says, hold fast to Jesus. Otherwise, you're going to be swept away in in the current of the world, in in your culture, in life that is dragging you from trusting in him. And so how can we hold fast to Jesus? How can we go to him with our issues? Well, there are three things the writer tells us about Jesus here that means that we can have utter confidence in going to him. Here's the first thing he says. He says, go to Jesus. He's the son. Did you see that in verse 14? Therefore, since we have a great high priest who's ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God. Now, the ascension is one of those slightly weird bits of the Bible we tend not to talk about that much, where where Jesus went back to be with his Father in heaven on a cloud. But it's vital for us, because it means we now have a man in heaven. The high priest was the representative for the Jewish people to God. And so the writer says, now you have a representative to God right in the heart of heaven, Jesus. But, but he's not just any old representative. He is the Son. The writer shows that. He explains it down in chapter 5 and verse 5. He, he quotes from a couple of Old Testament songs, Psalms. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, you are my son. Today I have become your father. It's a quote from Psalm 2. And in Psalm 2, God makes his king, the Messiah, his son, and then ruler over the whole of creation. He's the one who kings should bow before and fear. But but then the writer goes on and says in verse 6 of chapter 5, And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And that's from Psalm 110, where this glorious king is made priest, God's representative for his people. Melchizedek is a guy who crops up in Genesis 14 in the account of Abraham. He's described as being king of Salem and priest of God Most High. In other words, he's a king of Jerusalem And he's the priest to represent the people to God. And the writer's making a simple point. That's who Jesus is. 
He's not just the one who rules over all creation. He's the one who God has appointed as your man in heaven, your representative there, the one to be for you on your side in his presence. They say it's, uh, it's not what you know, but who you know that matters, isn't it? Certainly true if you want to get tickets at Twickenham, I can tell you, for rugby. It's not what you know, it's who you know that matters. So a famously American presidents are not very good at using this in their own advantage. So Bill Clinton didn't he pardoned his brother-in-law in his last few days in office in the White House. President Donald Trump just can't help appointing a variety of not all members of his family to roles within the White House and the United Nations, even as the rest of the world thinks that might be inappropriate. Uh, most famously, uh, there was a, a glorious picture of access to the president that John F. Kennedy showed. Did you, did you know this picture? There's two John F. Kennedys in this picture. It's one of those things the Americans do. There's John F. Kennedy Sr. and John F. Kennedy Jr. And that's the, res, the resolute desk in the, the Oval Office in the White House. Yeah, I mean, you just don't walk in there. You don't have access there unless you've got serious security clearance. Or, of course, you're the son of the president, and then you get to play under the desk while Dad's signing off on a few laws. Well, the one who's in heaven is the son. We have access right to, to the throne room of God because we have access through the son. And therefore, that means we have the most powerful friend in the universe sitting in the, the highest place in the universe. Jesus, who is sovereign, king of the universe, is also our man for us in the place where all the decisions that matter are made. That there is no more precious ruler than Christ and no more saviour who is for you than Christ. But he's not just some sort of high and lofty ally. He's the one who understands what it is to be you. Because the writer says, go to Jesus, the sympathetic son. Did you know that today? Jesus knows what it is to go through what you're going through. Just look at verse 15. Verse 15 is an, an extraordinary verse. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weakness, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Just let, just let that think in. sink in for a moment. It's the most extraordinary claim about God, isn't it? Tempted in every way, just as we are. Every way. Now, how do you picture Christ? I, I think sometimes there's a danger we sort of picture Christ serenely floating through life above it all. As though being perfect just sort of came easily to him. Just a walk in the park, that obeying his Father in heaven thing. Never sinning, but never struggling. Totally different from us. No, says the writer, tempted in every way. So he has sympathy for us. And that's not the sympathy we might have for an earthquake victim in, in Haiti, you know, from, from the safe seat in our sitting room in front of the telly, and we go, oh, that's tough being an earthquake victim in Haiti. No, this is the sympathy of someone who, who's been through an earthquake, someone who has been buried under the rubble of life. 
someone who has felt the pain and has had the same struggles. In fact, the word sympathetic literally means suffer with. God knows what it is to live like a man being obedient to himself, tempted in every way. Jesus knows the struggle to do his Father's will. When we're struggling, we can't, we can't turn around and say to the Lord, you just don't know what it's like. No, he knows exactly what it's like. Do you see, the writer again makes a comparison with the Jewish high priests. Look at chapter 5 and verse 1. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. That's Jesus, fully human, among the people, subject to weakness. So how does he deal with us as we're struggling? He deals gently with those who are ignorant and going astray. He understands how tough it is to do what he is asking us to do. Look look how the writer puts it in verse 7, chapter 5. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. If you look at the life of Jesus, and if you're not a Christian, that's the best thing you can do. If you, if you look at the life of Jesus in a gospel, you'll find that throughout it, the devil constantly offered Jesus the chance to give up and to fit in. We see it. When he's tempted at the start of his ministry, I'll give you all the world, Jesus. We see it when Peter later rebukes him for saying that he's going to go and die on the cross. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Because what Peter's offering him is the easy way out. It's a comfortable life. In fact, that's what the devil offers Jesus again and again. Go for glory now, my way. Rule the world. Use your power for yourself. Don't worry about the plan of your father, and certainly don't suffer for anyone else. I guess that's very similar to what the devil says to us most days. Go for glory now, my way. Build heaven on earth for yourself. You deserve it. Don't bother using your life for others, and certainly don't suffer for for, for God. Why would you want to? But, But the battle for Jesus, it was so intense. It was most intense the night before he dies. I think that's what's being pictured in verse 7, isn't it? It's the Garden of Gethsemane. And we read Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. It comes in Luke's Gospel. It's going to be on the screen. Let me read it to you. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, I just don't know about you, but, but I have never struggled in obedience to the point where I've sweated blood. But, but Jesus did. One of the most extraordinary things that happened after... 9-11, the September the 11th tragedy, was a party of Americans who went to Afghanistan. They didn't go for revenge. They didn't go to see the flattened Al-Qaeda bases. No, they went to meet families of people who had been killed in bombings. 
Rita Lassa, who lost her brother in the World Trade Center, said, she went to share my experience with people who'd lost their loved ones here through no fault of their own. No wonder that meeting with the Afghans was called intense. You see, you've got two groups of people who know exactly what each other have been through. Jesus knows what it is to suffer in obedience. On the cross, he suffered in a way we can't imagine. And the Hebrew Christians need to know their God knows what it is to suffer in obedience to him. They need to know their high priest is sympathetic to their struggles. Life is hard for me, Jesus, we say. And Jesus says, I know it's hard for you. I know life is hard. I've got the scars to prove it. There's no one better qualified to help us. Jesus knows what it is to cry out in desperate prayer, to tell God what you're feeling rather than what what you know you should be doing. Father, not my will be done. I really want to do my will. No, yours. Jesus knows what it is to be deserted by his friends because of what he believed and the way he behaved. Jesus even knows what it is to be separated from the person you most love when you die. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you? Jesus knows what it is to be exhausted from helping others and still to have people bothering you. He knows what it is to be used by people and left alone. He knows what it is to have folk mutter and and talk about you behind your back. He knows what it is to be ridiculed by the authorities and falsely accused. He knows what it is to die in agony for your faith. Go to Jesus the sympathetic son. But he is different from us in one vital regard. It came at the end of verse 15. Yet he did not sin. So lastly, it's go to Jesus, the sympathetic, sinless son. Because in the end, that the high priests of, of the Old Testament, they weren't just subject to weakness. No, they were guilty of sin. We see that in chapter 5 and verse 3. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. But but not Jesus. In fact, Jesus has been tempted far, far more than any of us have for one primary reason. I don't know, when I'm I'm tempted, temptation quite often comes to an end. You know when temptation comes to an end, you're thinking, I'm not going to do it, I'm not going to do it, I'm going to get it, I'll stuff it. I'll just do it. And we sin. And at the point we sin, temptation is over. But but Jesus never did that. Every single moment of every day, he fought the fight not to sin, and he never gave in. There wasn't a moment when he wasn't fighting that battle to remain perfectly obedient. He fought and he won. Look how the writer puts it in chapter 5 and verse 8. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Not, Not obedience like a child learns obedience. In other words, children are born naughty. If you've uh, managed to abuse one not like that, please could you come and tell me how you did it? They tend to be born naughty, and then we teach them right from wrong. We teach them obedience. Yeah, they learn obedience. But that's, that's not Jesus. It's not that he had to be corrected. No, he, he learned obedience in the way you might learn to drive. You know, we all know that you've never made a mistake ever driving. 
But you still had to go to those lessons, didn't you? And you had to drive perfectly with your driving instructor for a number of hours to experience what it was to be the perfect driver you are. Well, that's how Jesus learned obedience. He experienced what it was to be fully obedient to his Father in heaven. He went through that experience so that he had an obedient life. And because Jesus had that obedient life, it it meant that he is able to save us for an eternity with him. Do you see that, Dan, in verse 9 of chapter 5? And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Perfect is is a word really that means completion. It means that Jesus was fit for purpose, so that he lived this life of obedience. He learned obedience, and then he had this obedient life that he could take to the cross and offer in the place of our disobedient lives. He never sinned, so he could be the sacrifice for our sin. He was totally pure, so that he could cleanse us through his blood shed at the cross from our impurity. And his priestly work, that sacrifice, cleanses forever. It's an eternal salvation. That's why, again, the writer says he's a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Because Melchizedek, the writer says, was a a king of righteousness. And Jesus gives us his righteousness in place of our unrighteousness. And Melchizedek was king of a place called peace, And Jesus gives us his peace with God in the place of our enmity against God. And Melchizedek was king over God's city. And Jesus makes us those who are royal members of his royal family over God's people, children of God, in place of being rebels who've rejected God. See, Jesus walked the life of obedience, sinless, He fought not just at the cross, but he fought all through his life so that when he got to the cross, he had the perfect life to offer in our place. And what do we need to do? It's in verse 9. All who obey him. That's hard, isn't it? (laughs) Obeying him. That's why we've got to hold fast to him. And, And how can we hold fast to him? How do we do that? Well, here's the application this morning. It's verse 16. Look down at chapter 4 and verse 16. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You know, Harry and Meghan, they're apparently inviting 2,640 commoners. That's you and me, by the way. (laughs) Unless any of you are titled this morning. If so, I'd like to see you afterwards over a coffee. No, but yet commoners, they're inviting 2,640 commoners to their wedding. Well, it's, it's not really to their wedding. What you get to do is you get to go inside the grounds of Windsor Castle and be the crowd. You get to stand outside the wedding, sort of inside the castle and cheer. But you have to, to, to be a commoner there, you have to be someone who's achieved something, a notable worthy in the community. Yep. And then you get to go to the wedding of the royal couple. But, but we're invited somewhere far more precious. And we're invited to go in with confidence. We're invited to go into the throne room of heaven. I mean, can, can you imagine coming into the throne room of, of, of heaven? Yeah? The throne room of the universe. And you're coming, you're coming to the one who gives you life. The one who doesn't just hold atoms together, but thought up the atom and made it. 
And you're coming to meet the one who orders the whole of creation according to his will. The one who we've already seen in Psalm 2 rebukes kings in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. The one who Psalm 2 says smashes nations like you or I might smash a cup with a hammer, a pottery cup. We're coming to the one who kings should serve with fear. That's who we're approaching. That's who's on the throne, in the throne room of heaven. How how do you feel if you're coming to someone and you knew they were like that? I mean, most people in our country get get a little bit nervous about meeting a 92-year-old woman who's about four foot three. But that's who you're coming to on the throne. I got nervous when I went to see my headmaster, and he was quite a nice bloke. But but as you draw close to this, the highest throne in the universe, to meet the King of kings and the Lord of lords, you see the one sitting on the throne is smiling. You know him. And he knows you. He is your friend. He's been your companion through the struggles of life. And he says to you, I've walked your road and I've felt your pain. But both your joy and your sorrows, I know them well. Come, come to me. I've, I've lived the life you should have led in obedience. And I've died the death you should have died because you were disobedient. Come in with confidence. Come in as I would come into this throne room. Not because of who you are, but because of who I am. Not because of what you've done, but because of what I've done for you. Come, because this is the throne of grace. That's actually what it says in verse 16. It doesn't say God's throne of grace, as though there was a, another throne of grace, sort of alternative thrones of grace you can find in the universe. They're not. This is the throne of grace. This is the only place that sinful people can be treated like perfect sons and daughters. This is the only place where you'll receive mercy for your past failure and grace and strength to live now. This is the only place you can come to the one who is sitting on the throne and is for you, Jesus the Son, to receive God's undeserved loving kindness. It's the only place you can come at any time. Because literally, it's not just time of need, which we make, we think, oh, when life's going belly up. No, this literally says at the right time. You can go there at any time. In fact, you need to go there at any time to this the throne of grace and you can come with confidence why because on the throne is the son of God who rules all things and there is no one better equipped to help you and on the throne is the sympathetic son of God who has experienced the struggle of living as a human being. There is no one who understands you better than he does and who is more for you. And how do you know he's for you? Because on the throne is the sinless Son of God who has battled through life to obey that he might give up his life in love for you. And therefore he says, come. Let us therefore approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Will you come to him? Will you talk to him today in prayer about how you feel and what you need? Will you gather with us as a church on Tuesday and talk to him 
about how we feel and what we need because that is the nature of the God we follow. Will you come to him with confidence today? Let's pray together.